um, I've levelled up and we now have a projector. Um, this is thanks to um, Myth and Mysteries in Black and White who were one of our previous speakers and they actually donated their fee to us so it meant I can get it all teched out which is very exciting. Um, I'm actually going to be recording this um, session, session, this talk. <laughs> um, people have been asking, you know, that if they're not from Norfolk, if they're not even from Norwich, you know, they still want to be able to hear the talk. So I thought I'd give a go um, at recording it as a podcast and just see how it goes. So if you don't want to be on a podcast, just save your questions until I turn it off. <laughs> then that'll be fine. Um, finally, I just wanted to say... Um, a big welcome to Stacia, who's officially joining the Folklore Society team. Um, she has been freed from the shackles of the Eastern Daily Press. <laughs> um, so we can do whatever we want now. Yay! <laughs> Fun times ahead. Yeah. Um, so I will hand you over to Chris momentarily. He's going to be talking about his book, um, Apparitions of East Anglia. Um, there'll be time for questions afterwards if, if you want. And also Chris has got some copies of his book to sell at the end as well, if you... It takes your fancy. Which I think people. So you till the end. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, with that, I will pass you over to Chris. Cool. Nice one. Um, can I? Can you see if I stand? Yeah. I kind of like standing. It makes me feel like I'm doing something rather than sitting down. Um, cool. Thank you everybody for turning up. It's really nice. Thank you for asking me to come. It's really nice to be asked to do this sort of stuff. Um, especially after COVID and things like that, I've become a little bit of a hermit. So this is the first time I've been out talking out and about. I used to do it quite a lot, um, and I'd like to get back into it. So this is a nice, friendly place to do that. So that's good. So thanks for coming along. It's always nice that people, you know, you sit at home and it's like, oh, I did a thing, and then people seem interested. And it's like, that's a nice feeling, basically. Um, so yeah, I wrote a book called Apparitions of East Anglia, and I was going to be talking a bit about that. But what I thought I'd take you on, I wasn't sure quite how to put this talk together, but I thought I'd talk a little bit about who I am and where I'm from and kind of what influenced me originally and then a bit about writing the book and then a bit about the stories in it, if that sounds like a reasonable thing to do. Um, so to start with who I am, um, I'm Chris Fulton. This is me pretending to be Matthew Hopkins in the tree in Manning Tree. I don't know if you've been to Manning Tree. I did a day looking around um, Matthew Hopkins locations and that's actually a tree that's quite near where he's buried. It's quite just outside Manning Tree and apparently... Um, that's where people used to hide from him, inside the, the trunk of a giant oak. So I shoved my dear old pensioner stroke-addled stroke mother in the base of it and still on top of it. <laughs> so she was like a witch. Um, but anyway, uh, so yeah, I'm the author of um, Apparitions of East Anglia. Um, I also wrote a previous book called The Eel Man Chronicles, which is a comic book all about um, my dad's life. He's the last eel catcher in the Fens, so he's had a funny life. So I wrote a comic book about that, and that was sort of how I started my writing journey or career or whatever you want to call it. Um, I'm also a countryside walker, spend a lot of time walking around in the countryside um, and, and I'm a keen amateur photographer, especially uh, during the recent years um, when we could go out walking about in Covid and things like that. Um, so we started getting into photography. Uh, a church ruin finder, most of our walks are based around <laughs> clambering through brambles and stuff like that to find old church ruins, I really like doing that. Um, by trade or my job and stuff like that is I'm kind of a graphic designer, software designer, um, and a doodler. I've always been doodling. I do a thing called sketchnoting, which is like visual note-taking, so it's always kind of come natural to me to draw things. Um, and I'm also a drone pilot, and I also make music videos with that stuff. And actually, like, this sounds like a big list of random shit, which I kind of <laughs> am an amateur at all of it, but it all kind of consolidates into it, and I'll kind of touch on different aspects of it as I go along. Um, if you're interested in following me or anything, um, I'm on Instagram as Spolton. Um, it used to have a lots of folklore stuff on it, now it's mostly puppy. Um, and I'm on Twitter as Chris Spolton, which used to be lots about design, and now it's mostly hated Tories. Um, but they're both there if you want to do occasionally. Yeah, yeah, cool. So occasionally like, those things crop up. Every now and again there'll be something interesting, but there's, there's most of that. Um, I'm not from Norwich originally. I grew up in the Fens. I'm not sure if anybody really... The Fens is still, even in this day and age, is quite a mysterious place. So I've got a handy diagram, which is a Fen diagram, to show you where the Fens is. Um, and it's kind of um, in the intersection of Norfolk, Cambridgeshire and Lincolnshire. And I've specifically come from a place called Parson Drove, which sits about here. It's right on the um, Cambridgeshire and Lincolnshire border. Um, I don't know if you know much about the Fens, it's pretty remote and stuff, and Parson Drove is a really sort of tiny, isolated village. It only had a, when we were growing up, there's more people there now, I went back to see my mate the other day, and it's obviously grown, because everywhere does, 
but back when we back in the day it was probably like 600 people or something These villages in the fens are very very isolated places so i went on google um what do you call it google street view it's about halfway between Wisbeach and Peterborough and a bit north up towards Lincolnshire, basically. I went on Google Street View and I thought I'd get a view of what's north of the village, um, what's south of the village, what's east of the village and what's west of the village. Um, and, yeah, unfortunately, as you can see, it's fairly remote and there's not a lot going on there. In fact, one of the only things of note um, is that Samuel Pepys once visited Parson Drove. I don't know if you remember, you know, Samuel Pepys is a famous diarist. He wrote about um, the Great Fire of London. He wrote about the plague and stuff like that. Um, and he came to visit Parson Drove in Thursday, 17th of September, 1663. Um, and he made a diary entry about it, which is pretty interesting because it's only a tiny place, you know, and this is kind of its claim to fame. So bear with me. It's quite long, but I thought I'd read it out because it's kind of like the quintessential Fen experience that Samuel Pepys had. Um, so... Up, and, my, and it's a bit flowery language, which I'm not very great at, obviously, because it was in 1663. Look at his hair and stuff, but, you know, that's, <laughs> that's what it is. So, up, and my father being gone to bed ill last night and continuing so this morning, I was forced to come to a new consideration, whether it was fit for le to let my uncle and his son go to Wisbeach um, about my uncle Day's estate alone or not, and concluded it unfit and so resolved to go with them myself, leaving my wife there where she was. I began a journey with them, and with much ado, through the fens, along dikes, where sometimes we were ready to have our horses sink to the belly, we got by night with a great deal of stir and hard riding to Parsons Drove, a heathen place <laughs> where I found my uncle and Aunt Perkins and their daughters, poor wretches, in a sad, poor, thatched cottage, like a poor barn or a stable, peeling of hemp, in which I did give myself good content to see their manner of preparing of hemp, and in a poor condition of habit, took them to the miserable inn, and there, after long stay, and hearing of Frank their son then mirror, play upon his treble, as he calls it, with which he earns part of his living, and singing of a country bawdy song, we sat down to supper, the whole crew, and Frank's wife and child, a sad company of which I was ashamed, <laughs> supped with us. And after supper, I was talking with my aunt about her report concerning my uncle's will and surrender, I found her in such different reports from what she writes and says to the people, and short of what I expected, that I fear little will be done of good by it. <coughs> by and by, news is brought to us that one of our horses is stole out of the stable, which proves to be my uncle's, at which I am inwardly glad. I mean that it wasn't <laughs> mine ho my horse. And at this we were at a great loss. And they doubt a person lay it next door, a Londoner and lawyer's clerk, I think that's who he got arrested, who caused him to be secured in his bed, and other care to be taken to seize the horse. And so, at twelve at night or more, to bed in a sad, cold, nasty chamber, only the maid was indifferent handsome, and so I had a kiss or two of her, and I to bed, and a little after I was asleep, they waked me up to tell me that the horse was found, which was good news, and so to sleep in mourning, but was bitten cruelly, um, and no one else was of in our company, which I wonder at, by all the gnats. <laughs> so, I take from that that Samuel Pink's missing across the fens, hung out at the pub and hated it, slept with a barmaid in the in the swan and then uh, had his horse nicked and that was that so welcome to the fence Sam that is pretty much a, a kind of thing but even in a heathen miserable place such as Parson Drove out in the middle of nowhere in 1663 that would have been miles away from anywhere we used to hear stories about how it used to take a couple of days at least if people died in the next village to come and bury them in Parson Drove it took two days because the horses and coffins kept sinking in all the ditches and stuff. <laughs> the feds in 1663 would have been pretty bloody grim. Um, but even there, there's lots of stories, even in such a tiny, localised area. And I think this is the sort of thing that just kind of, when you come from that sort of place, it absorbs into you and you just, it's just the truth of where you're at, right? It's like all of these stories are just the truth and the history of the village that you're at. And I think that's how it starts to seep in when you're a weird fenboy like I am. Um, <laughs> you do it. So... Some of the stories in Parson Drove, even in the miserable inn that um, Samuel Pepys stayed in, this is the swan, he stayed in there, and this is um, the rite of passage for every Parson Drove kid to start underage drinking in there. We throw up in the car park around the corner here, everybody's throwing up around there, we used to hang out at the bus stop opposite here. But even in the swan, this window here, which may or may not be the room that Samuel Pepys stayed in, everybody in the village knew that that was haunted by the ghost of a barmaid that used to appear all the time. Maybe that was the same barmaid he slept with. Who knows? Maybe she got bitten to death by gnats and appeared. But it's, it's funny, that juxtaposition of that building still there. It's interesting that he was there all those hundreds of years ago. Um, so, yeah, that's, that was one of the, the stories in the village. And it's such a focal point in the village, obviously, because it's the local pub and things like that. 
Um, down the further end of the village is St John's Church, um, which is all right down the far end of the village. And for our whole childhood, so when I was there, I lived there like 83 to 99 or something like that. And our whole childhood, it was derelict. And it was derelict for many years before that, like at least 50 or 60 years before that. Um, but there were stories people's mum and dads used to tell us about how um, cats had been, dead cats had been nailed to that church door and it was derelict and people had like daubed red paint or blood on the walls and like satanic rituals back in the 70s and things like that. And as kids, we all grew up knowing that if you ran around it three times um, and looked in the window, <laughs> anti-clockwise, looked in the window, you'd see the devil, which is obviously quite a universal story of the, those little things that happened. But we were all terrified about that. And I actually went back, they've now opened it up and they kind of have village events in there and it's, it's getting used they do back tours and things like that but i went back last year yeah last year to see like a folk concert there my friend's dad was playing and even then i was like if i walk around this church three times i'm gonna see the devil and i dare to do it and i'm like 40 on now and it was like you know i still dare to do it and i think that's also part of the power of when you're immersed in this stuff like how well it sinks into you sort of thing and and affects you moving forward i was still scared even though you know you're kind of like it's going to be fine obviously you know um, but it wasn't, and I didn't do it, so, you know, there's something there. Um, this is uh, Elbow Lane, which is just up from the thing. We all knew, again, you didn't go down Elbow Lane at night time um, because you would hear strange voices and whispers on the, in the wind. No one went down Elbow Lane at night time. And from there, I measured it on Google Maps using the, the thing. It's, it's seven and a half miles from that point to the next house. It's just across bare <laughs> fields. Like, for it's a straight line. You end up hitting Hole Beach, a place called Hole Beach which is miles away, and obviously the Fens is now drained and stuff, but back in the day it was all marshy and things like that. And maybe those voices were the famous lantern men, that, and they were characters in the Fens that, um, they were like will-o'-the-wisps in the Fens that would whisper as you were trying to traverse over it and sing to you, and kind of lure you in and then drown you, they'd lure you into pits and things. And it's like, maybe or maybe not, I don't know, because I never went down that one late after <laughs> night, and I still wouldn't, but that, it, it, you know, it was another location in the village that um, would be the case. Um, the next village along from us is Morrow, and this, this place here, this clump of trees, which is basically the only thing on the horizon, as, as I mentioned, and it's the only place um, where there's a, a mound or anything above like the general flatness of it, um, and that was always called Ghost Hill, and supposedly there was a, um, the ghost of like three of Oliver Cromwell's troops and their cannon, which had their cannon aimed at the church itself when they were going to blow it up, and they tried to fire it, and it exploded, and it um, uh, killed them all and then that appeared on a certain day of the night but you could never go in there because that was some weird old dude lived in there in an old spooky house and he had fierce dogs you couldn't even see in there but every time you passed they just barked at you and i think that added to the general sort of like scariness of the place um so yeah oliver Cromwell's cannon there were, there were rumors that oliver there was another one across the other side of the village but that's definitely definitely the main one um this isn't the actual lady. This is the witch from Snow White. <laughs> but there was also a lady called Holy Hannah. And the old timers in the pub, when we started going in there, used to tell us about Holy Hannah. And she was like an old lady who thought had, like, everybody thought she had, like, mystical powers or was a witch and things like that. And she had, um, she lived in a house just outside the village, a couple of miles outside the village. And she kind of wandered from uh, place to place around the locality, the different villages around. Um, and she had a hand bandaged in red cloth. And she claimed to have touched Jesus with it. Um, and she used to go around and knock on people's doors and just instantly, like, give me food or I'll curse you and things like that. And all the old lads, you know, Ray, the crazy old man at the pub that used to sit in the corner, um, he used to tell us about how they'd done that and she would come and he was scared of her when he was a kid and things like that. So she'd travel around. Sometimes she had a, a mate with her, like a, I don't know, Fen Banjo or something. You know? So they just cruised around and you could encounter them on your travels and get the, um, you know, uh, get hassled by him basically it sounds like um these are two modern ones which don't look very um you know folkloric or anything like that but this one here i had to find it. on that the one on the left there on that spot it's a shame it's gone but there was a big spooky four story three or four story um like old farmhouse and it had a huge crack down the side um and every time you pass that there was supposedly a lady in there it had all those you know when like neck curtains flutter and like those rank a bit like the one opposite swindon where we used to work that that house there yeah um, all the neck curtains would flutter and supposedly there there was a like, ghostly lady that would appear and things like that um, and this one here is just that house but that was in the 70s a guy murdered his wife and then himself in there killed himself in that house um, which definitely did happen and that was on my, the way to my mate Johnny's house who I used to go around for tea and play computer games and stuff like that and I had to bike past that house every time and it was like right, like regardless of whether it's haunted or not that's a scary house so I'm going to bike around there um, 
But the interesting thing about all these is, like I said earlier, it's like they were all just the truth, if you know what I mean. Everybody in the village knew all of these stories and everybody like kind of believed them. It wasn't like you didn't say, oh, have you been down Ghost Hill? There's a ghost there. And everybody would be like, ah, what you're all about believing in ghosts. It was just the history of Parsons Road and everybody knew it and things like that. So these really didn't, these didn't, weren't necessarily, these are kind of backgroundy stuff, but they weren't the main thing that got me interested in, in folklore. And that happened down this path here. And I find it amazing now that you could actually look on Google Earth and like, like that, that patch of trees there in the middle of a field is where I definitely, definitely got interested in folklore. And I find that quite amazing that you can pinpoint it now on aerial things. So that's the spinny. Um, and we used to go down there. Um, I think one of the other things about growing up in a small village is that like kids all hang around. So you all play football down the park or whatever and you just roam about and it doesn't really age is less of a barrier because you're the only people that live in the village right so you've got like 16 17 year olds hanging out with 10 or 11 year olds because that's just the crew that's in the village and you roam around and ride your bikes and things like that um so we used to go down here and like make bases and run around playing armies and um build fires and stuff like that um but then it turns out this was actually the location that had been like passed down from generations of older kids in Parson drove to younger kids um, to tell ghost stories and scare them all and one day that ended up being my turn I was like 10 or 11 or whatever and it was dark um, we'd finished roaming about and you know messing about as kids do whatever you're doing um, and then um, it's like this rite of passage thing so the ghost stories came out and that was where I heard the story that has probably affected me the most out of any story um, anywhere for ever which is of course Black Shook right like the original og hellhound the big bad wolf i really can't think of any other creature that sums up east anglia in multiple dimensions whether it's like by putting a sort of face onto the region or whether you know we've got people like i don't know stephen fry say adelia smith but none of these people even lord nelson is from norfolk right but none of these people represent east anglia as much to me as black ship does um and the story was that um a lady, was that, was that Black Chuck? <laughs> it's not even scary, it's me, me telling it. It's not like 1989 or whatever. Um, so, um, uh, what was I talking about? Black Chuck. Um, so yeah, they were telling us all these stories uh, uh, about him and it turned out that uh, a lady in the village in 1980, I think it was, was walking around the block. So the fens is all the fields and the drains that drain them up and it's like a big grid basically now. So everything's quite squared out. Um, and we used to go around the blocks in order to um, you know, ride our bikes and things like that. And the story was that a lady was walking around there with her son and then eventually like, as the sun was setting and all that kind of stuff, um, and she heard a noise behind her and she turned around and there was this big black shaggy dog in the field. Oh, there he is again. Um, <laughs> big black shaggy dog in the field following her. You know, she was like a you know, glowing eye. It was like panting and like growling and things like that. And it terrified her. And she ran all the way back to the local shop and um, said to Mr. Viles, who ran the shop, who, who he should be a folklore character. He's about 350 years old when we were kids and he's still going now, so I don't know. Um, told her that he should see this dog um, and he was like, don't worry about it, it's just a farmer's dog who you imagined it or whatever, whatever. But then a year later, she literally just collapsed and died. And she, she, because she'd been cursed by Black Shook, because that's what, that was one of the stories that we always grew up with, the Black Shook, if you saw him. Obviously, there's now different, there's loads of different sort of origin stories and ways Shook appears. Sometimes he's a guardian, sometimes he's a, a harbinger of death or whatever. But she saw him and she died exactly a year to the day, just dropped down to her. And I was absolutely, I was absolutely terrified. I was 10, I think, and like the older kids are saying this, oh no, not that, come back. Yes. <laughs> um, like, you know, and as a 10 year old, you're very impressionable and things like that. And I don't think I've ever biked home faster than that. And what made it even more realistic is knowing that exactly where it was, it was like, we were in the spinny here and it was like right here that she saw a black shook. So it was like, if you imagine, like, in an isolated clump of woods, it's dark, it's grim everywhere, the, the fens and stuff, and you know exactly where it is. Like, I used to fish along there, we used to ride our bikes along there, so it was just, like, something that, like, just sunk into my mindset, I think, of, like, how something so scary and so uncanny could be so familiar and things like that. And I think that's also one of the things about the power of folklore, that is, like, there's a thing that's to the side of where we are, if that makes sense. It's off to the... From, that's a quote from the Invisibles comic book. I don't know if you like that, but uh, the direction that can't be pointed to. I like that. Like, yeah, it's um, so like that. And it was just because it was there, it just resonated so uh, much with me, I think. And that's what like completely got me into this sort of stuff. 
Um, and I, I biked home faster than I've ever biked home before that, that night. And I honestly think, I, I was thinking this when I was writing this, I probably thought about Black Shuff literally at least once every day for the next 33 years. For some reason or other, I think about him all the time, basically. So it's like, uh, it's definitely, definitely made an impression. I've got, a, you know, a sick, massive tattoo of him. So it's like, yeah, I'm fairly committed to the Black Shuff cause. Um, this sparked an interest in all sorts of random stuff like monsters, ghosts, legendary creatures, uh, Greek myths and legends, UFOs. I also 99% uh, saw, sure I saw a UFO fly over the village when just as I passed that house where the guy murdered his um, wife. Um, I was biking home from there and almost certain I saw a black triangle fly over me. Um, and we still talk about UFOs quite regularly, don't we, Nicola? Yeah. Um, and things like, uh, you know, getting into Warhammer and role-playing games and stuff like that. And then gradually as you get older, watching films like The Wicker Man and kind of just immersing yourself in all of that. And again, I think that's where sort of folklore sits in kind of like all my interests. It's local things for local people, um, fantasy stuff. I'm really into darkness and heaviness. Um, sort of the unknown and storytelling i think folklore just in, in, elements of folklore encapsulate all of that sort of in one go and um weird shit i like weird shit there's no denying um and the fens was great right the fens was great but eventually you do need a break from this as you become 18 you maybe start seeing that there's women around that aren't related to their own families and you know other stuff there's, there's possibilities out there so you need to sort of have a break from the fence, I think, every 18, 19 year old years. So I came to Norwich, um, and uh, I've been here ever since. And I think Norwich is really great for this sort of stuff, because like even now, walking down, El I must have walked down Elm Hill a hundred times, but it's still atmospheric, you still know there's there, there's that father, I never get his name right, but the ghost of Father Ignatius there. Um, the stories such as when you hear about like the hauntings at the maid's head, it's just like walking around that medieval thing the ghost of lord sheffield in the adam and eve you find that out quite early on when you start like delving into things i think everybody gets triggered like most noobs where you're like oh tombland that sounds cool and then you're like oh it's play pits in tombland and then everybody finds out a few years after that that isn't the case because it's just an urban myth but it's one of those things oh there's a place for tombland there must be loads of dead people there that's cool i'll go check it out oh no actually it was just a market but you know it was like and i think norwich is so rich in stories that i think as it's gone on and delving into all of these it's just sort of enhanced my interest as I get older and older I get more interested in digging into these stuff um, and the good thing is like you know I've never really been one to give a shit what anybody thinks of me too much but there is an element of like oh I'm going to move to university I probably won't mention that I like Warhammer for a while um, because of that thing but as you get older you don't care and you can just embrace it more anyway and I love nerding out about all this sort of stuff so it's like that's fine um, so why did I end up writing a folklore book that's actually why you're here not to hear about the fence necessarily um, I've always been a creative person. Like I said, I do design, I do lots of drawing, um, I, I'm into photography, video, all that sort of stuff that I mentioned. I think I've also, as well as thinking about Black Shook, I think I've probably drawn a skull or a zombie or a devil or a demon every day of my life as well. <laughs> I sit in meetings at work and they're like, oh, have you made notes? And it's like, yeah, here's some skeleton paling itself. I kind of never got over that hump of like a 14-year-old kid like drawing people's death and destruction, basically. Um, kind of never got over that. Um, but all of my stuff has been purely visual, really. I guess like posters, I used to do gig posters for bands and things like that. Um, and I've never really, like folklore something has been on my mind for years and years and years and years. But I never really had the confidence to be a writer, if you see what I mean. I never really, um, what's the word? I never really gave a shit about English at school. Um, didn't uh, you know? It, it just never was a thing that I would ever consider myself to be as a writer in any way, shape, or form. Um, and but the eel man, I wrote that, and that was that's just a collection of stories about my dad's life. And it was kind of like, it, whilst it was very personal, I mean, it's taken it's a book that takes the piss out of my dad basically nonstop. <laughs> but while it's very personal, so I wasn't writing like a writer might. I was just telling stories about my own family, if that makes sense. So it it kind of flowed easier and came easier as a result of that. But I got some really really nice feedback off that. It got really nice reviews and all sorts of stuff. Um, one guy mentioned that. Um, he uh, he hadn't spoken to his dad in four years, and reading the old man made him pick up the phone to his dad, which is pretty nice. Like you know, building bridges for families and things like that. So that's pretty cool. Um, so I had kind of like whilst folklore was like swirling around my mind, it was like I can't write a folklore book because I'm not a writer. But actually, the old man did give me a bit more confidence in that, um, and I learned a lot in the process. So I self-published the old man and the process of making a book and things like that. It made me know that I could make a thing that was quite interesting. So that was kind of maybe now's the time. Um, there was a couple of other events that 
I think actually triggered it. I think a the general decline of the UK with things like Brexit and uh, the Tories, um, and C uh, A and C and B. <laughs> Covid also happening. I think those two things happen at the same time. I think they both triggered different um, things. I'm convinced that the Brexit vote and uh, all of that kind of made everybody, it created a new realm and interest in who we are and where we're from and what it means to be us and all those sort of things. And And I think that triggered interest in folklore for people trying to connect to it. And at the same time, lots of things started popping up, like Matt's excellent shook zine things like weird norfolk was around that time right um and other zines like hellbore and weird walk and uh, the myths and mysteries one that you mentioned i know that's a fairly recent one but lots of these things started to appear all of a sudden i'm just convinced that it's a connection to people trying to connect to who they are and what they meant because the work the country was in such a uncertain time of what it was to be us sort of thing um so there was all of a sudden lots of inspiration and lots of um kind of cool stuff coming out and even music I, like I, uh, this is a lady called gazelle twin and this album called deep england and it's like basically brexit through the lens of ancient dark folklore and you're like i cannot recommend that album is astonishing and i highly recommend uh, checking that out if you can all of her stuff's amazing but deep england especially um and i think then also covid because it freed up to, i used to work in cambridge so it was a you know i was leaving the house at 6 30 and not getting back till 8 30 9 30 or something like that and all of a sudden you were sat at home with lots of free time so it was like actually I can um, leverage this and like use it to start researching and writing it and things and things like that um one of the things that I was also concerned about sorry you definitely can't see this but hopefully it will um is that I've always I'm a fan of folklore but I'm not a scholar of folklore and there's that blocker of actually sometimes folklore books are quite like I love folklore books but some of them are a bit dry and a bit academic and a bit impenetrable to get into I'm not necessarily interested in the academic perspective of it i want cool stories and i want like grim like a venn diagram of that would be basically like viz the beano and horrible history that's kind of like my ideal um way to articulate to consume like a folklore story so they're they're whilst they're great like peter tolkos book awesome right uh, absolutely amazing but even that sometimes is it's a bit hard to get through because it's the way it's presented and things like that it's very uh, text heavy and stuff and it just doesn't always quite connect with me um, and likewise, the other flip side of that is um, a, a, a bit of hyperbolic. I think you do it really well in Shook, where you've got the uh, Ada, Ada mm-hmm. character, and you put it through that like lens, and she's she's a, a, a hard-ass, right? And that works. <laughs> yeah. Um, but it's uh, sometimes it's a bit amateur dramatics for me, if that is fair to say. Um, I'm not that interested in people like wearing red pointy shoes and green tights and things like that. That doesn't land with me either. Um, so my stuff is, um, and the art and design of some of these books, like the local bookshelves, and stuff, they've all got the watercolour painting and that horrible drop shadow font that every single one has. It just doesn't land with me sometimes. Um, so I enjoy uh, lowbrow kind of cartoony punk rock art. My, my, like a lot of my inspiration comes from the art around music and gig posters and stuff like that. Um, I like funny little quirky details and I like leaning on like the weirder little aspects of it and the darker side of things like death and murder and um, all that sort of stuff. I also really enjoy tales of like the underdog or people in positions of power getting their comeuppance and I think that's perhaps a bit of the Ben man in me as well so who knows. Um, and I, I think that um, all that stuff is... Like, like I said, it is really important. Folklore is a serious subject and it should be right, um, should be researched seriously and someone needs to do that, but that isn't necessarily my role in it. And I also think that um, sometimes that can put people off that wouldn't that would find the stories interesting, but if they pick up a book and it's a heavy text read, they're not just gonna, they're just not gonna engage with it. So um, I think the stories are for everyone. It's all of our history, it shapes all the places where we live and it shapes who we all are. And I think everybody deserves even like just a breadcrumb to get into it to find out if, if they're interested in it. If you see what I mean, I think it's really important. And I think that my style of drawing and my style of writing is maybe that I was like, maybe I can do a kind of accessible like intro guidebook thing to this sort of stuff to even just give that, that hook to it. I'm never going to be able to go into all the, the nitty gritty of it because um, it's just not in my nature. Um, so yeah, maybe I can make something accessible. Um, I did start off uh, originally just drawing... Um, well, actually, originally I drew this comic book because I'd come off drawing the comic of the Eelman Chronicles and I thought maybe I can tell all these folklore stories in a comic book style. 
But actually, comics take a lot of work to draw because you have to draw each individual panel. It takes a bloody ages to do it. And I was actually quite worn out. Even though the eel man looks like a five-year-old's drawn it, really. Um, I was quite worn out by that. And it was a lot of work to do. So I did start with one. And I was very pleased with here. And I was trying out different techniques of kind of like the passage of time here. So this is the legend of the toad men of the fens which were these dudes that roamed around and could control horses. Right? They had like mystical, magical powers in the fence and could control horses. And the way they did that was by catching a toad, clubbing it to death, hanging it in a hawthorn bush, um, waiting until it had dried out and then burying it in an anthill for a whole month, and then putting the corpse of the toad in a river and watching it at a full moon. It all sounds very elaborate. Um, and then eventually its wishbone, or its, you know, I guess, I don't know if a frog has a wishbone, a toad has a wishbone, but some bone would wash out of it and float upstream, and they would then grab that bone because it would all be glowing and magical and powder it up and then um, mix it with oil. And they'd rub that on a horse's nose and on its legs and stuff like that, and they'd give them control over the... Um, over the horses, which is pretty cool. So they were like legendary around the fence for being able to control, like horse whispers, basically. Um, so yeah, that, that was the first one I drew because um, I thought that sounds cool, the Toad Men of the Fens. Um, then I looked into um, this guy here is uh, Saint Guthlac, who was uh, he was a warrior and a hermit back in the day. He was a warrior originally, and he went around you know fighting wars and stuff like that, and eventually had enough of that and became a monk. And then he became a hermit in the fens, and he went and found um, just a patch of dry land in the. I mean, he was that was like whenever that was, twelve hundreds or eleven hundreds or something. So proper back in the day, God knows what the fens was like then. It would have been pretty grim. Um, and um, yeah, so he went and found this cave. He built a cave on a on a lump of land, and people used to travel and he used to give them visions and things like that. But eventually, he just got all he apparently drank was mud, muddy water, and. Um, uh, Ergo, is that the right word? Like fungus, like um, mouldy bread. So he actually just began to trip out and like uh, lost his mind. And he got possessed by demons. And I, I looked that up today. They were ferocious in appearance, terrible in shape, with great heads, long necks, thin faces, yellow complexions, filthy beards, shaggy ears, wide foreheads, fierce eyes, foul mouths, horses' teeth, throats vomiting flames, twisted jaws, thick lips, strident voices, singed hair. Fat cheeks, pigeon breasts, scabby thighs, knotty knees, crooked legs, swollen ankles, splay feet, spreading mouths, raucous cries. For they grew so terrible to hear with their mighty shriekings that they filled the whole intervening space between earth and heaven with their discordant bellowings. Which could just be fen folk in general. It could have just been like the local people. Um, so yeah, um, and then he died. Uh, well, a cult rose around him after he died. He gave loads of visions to uh, King Aethwald. Um, I'll never get that right, but um, those those dudes back where they he he predicted that they would come to power and how they they would pass. And, and eventually he died. Uh, his body exhaled nectar and he floated up to the heavens. Um, and then a cult grew around him. And that little patch of dry land that he's on there now, when the fens was finally drained, that became Crowland. Um, if you've heard that, Crowland's got a big abbey there. Um, and so they built that in his honour, and the ruins are quite like a direct. If you're ever passing through that way, um, Crowland Abbey is cool. Um, the, the the things there. Um, so I started off by wanting to tell Fenland stories. Basically, it was like actually I know about that. I, I'm sat at home during COVID and things like that. So I thought I'll just tell some Fenland stories because the Fens doesn't not like I said not many people really know know about it. Um, there's also some things like as I mentioned, like kind of with a connection to the land of the Fens. Um, these guys, these uh, they're called the Tiddy Mun, and they were led by the king of Tiddy Muns, who was Tiddy Mun himself. And these guys um, lived, they were like little leprechaun guys that lived out in the fens. Um, and they kind of made sure, they controlled, um, the fens used to flood, uh, so everywhere would get flooded and people would have to live off like hunting wildfowl and uh, fishing and things like that. And then over top, you know, a year, as the seasons changed, uh, the waters would recede and then they could uh, grow crops and things like that. And the Tiddy Mun were kind of in control of that and making sure that all nature and man were in harmony um, until the fens started to get drained in the 1700s. Um, and they then rebelled against that. And so they, they made people disappear and they killed livestock and things like that. And people had to, every time they were trying to change something, the tiddy, you had to do a, a little prayer to the Tiddy Mun so they would leave your patch of the fens uh, alone without ruining it. Um, and I think that's a nice way of how people back then would have related the changing of the landscape to them, which was a common thing in the Fens, to a, uh, either a benevolent or malevolent force. I think that's quite, quite interesting. 
Um, this is the lost treasure of bad King John. King John was the one from Robin Hood, basically that King John, the, the evil one. Um, and he was in King's Lynn and had dysentery, both of which are pretty unfortunate <laughs> situations to find yourself in. Um, this is what I mean about liking the little dis. Like, the, I just like, regardless of everything else, I just love the fact he was died of dysentery in King's Lynn because that's like, yeah, it's pretty grim. Um, anyway. He um, was, they were heading to Swineshead Abbey near Boston, which is where my dad's from, actually. Um, so they had to traverse there. So he, he had him and then all of his carriages and things like that. I'm not sure why he was in Kings Lynn, but um, he, he was there for these reasons. So he set off across the fens. He went one way. He went via Wisbeach, which would be even worse, really, if you, you know, went to school in Wisbeach. Um, so he went via Wisbeach and his baggage train or with all his treasure in went straight north up past what is now Sutton Bridge so if you've ever gone out on the A17 you'll go you'll go past Sutton Bridge um, and as they were crossing uh, what would be the River Neen it would have been wider then and more muddy and stuff like that the tide came in and all his uh, baggage trains got lost uh, got stuck in the mud and then eventually the tide came in and that was it they were disappeared forever so and then never been found and that sounds like a thing that could have definitely definitely Happened. There's rumours that it might be a conspiracy and actually hid it somewhere and sent it off somewhere else. Um, and it was a decoy thing that had gone. Maybe you know they all had enemies and assassins after them and stuff like that. But I just really like the fact that like the Fens itself basically took its revenge on a, a miserable evil dude. Basically, I kind of like the fact that it did that. And there's rumours that a farmer dug some up and became very rich overnight without you know any explanation. But um, but my dad goes fishing down to Sun Bridge all the bit. He still hasn't found it. I wish he had. If he has, he's kept it secret from me. But I just think it's amazing that I could still be sat there all this time later, just under the River Neen, which is so familiar. The River Neen runs quite near to Parson Drove and then out by Thien. It's like Again, it's that element of familiarity and things like that. Um, some of the other Fens stories I like doing was Harold the Wagon. I think he sums up um, the Fens about as good as you possibly can. Um, he was um, like a... Uh, I mean, he's he's a very much an accurate historical figure, but he's um, was a, like a rebellious uh, revolutionary fighting the Normans. He was a pain in the northern side. Uh, he had a gang of um, who uh, I wrote them down. He had his mates, Lofwin. I'm never going to get the name right, but Lofwin the Scythe, Warwick the Heron, and the Robber of Drayton. So they were roaming around like Robin Hood and his merry men, like causing like doing like guerrilla attacks on the Normans and things like that. Um, and he had a sword called Brainbiter, which is awesome. Like that's a cool thing to have. Um, and he was a warrior. He fought bears, and he, he went and helped. Uh, he, he did all sorts around the country. But the one I liked the most was when the Normans were invading Ely. Ely's obviously got loads of history because it was definitely the Isle of Ely, the island of Ely. So it was a, a patch of dry land for years and years and years in the Fens, um, you know, like a proper landmark. And the Normans were inv invading that. Um, and they had a, uh, like they built like a big raft of uh, wood so they could cross over the big river leading to Ely. Um, and obviously Norman soldiers are all heavily armoured and they've got all this um, armour and shields and horses and stuff like that. Um, and uh, Herod the Wake set up an ambush. He, he got some witches to help him and they snuck around the back of the Normans and lit all the reed beds on fire. Um, so all the Normans piled onto the wooden thing and then they couldn't handle the weight of it and it collapsed and he, they sank in and that's how he defended Ely. Um, and then after that he escaped, like sort of melted back into the marshes. He had a base near Bourne um, in Lincolnshire and like melted back into the marshes but he was betrayed by one of the Isle of Ely monks who told the Normans the safe route to go. And then he got there and obviously they, they murdered, hung John and quartered him or whatever. Um, Tom Hickathrift is also super famous. Obviously, he's a very famous um, folklore character. He he lived in um, Tilney All Saints, which is the it was called the Smeath, the area he he thinks. So if you go on the A forty seven, just the other side of Kings Lynn, um, and then to Wisbeach, and kind of down a market, that triangle there is the Smeath. Um, and Tom Hickathrift uh, lived there. He was just a simple, happy, uh, nice chap. There happened to be an ogre out in the middle of the Smeath that used to rob people and take all this stuff and he was a giant Tom Hickory was a big friendly lad like seven foot eight foot tall or something um, and he snapped off the uh, wheel of a car and used the axe as a club and then he set about the ogre and beat him down and like saved the day and, and got loads of people I just think that's a really nice and what, what's nice is his grave is still at Tilney whether that's 
you know, of, of this. It, it doesn't look like it's that big, so hopefully they folded him half or something because it was <laughs> slightly underwhelming when you got to see a giant's grave. It's like, actually, you're only about five inches taller than me, dude. But he was obviously stronger. He could carry a, an impressive weight of straw. Uh, <laughs> He once kicked a foot. He kicked a stone, which is actually still at the church, and he kicked the stone over two miles, and it hit the church and, and uh, crashed into it. But my favourite thing about him, and this is what I mean about little details, and this is mentioned. This is the whole story itself. He also defended Ely from an army of like ten thousand people, and instead of his, he didn't have his axle and his uh, shield made from a weir. He just grabbed a miller, a lusty, raw-boned miller, I think it describes it as, by the ankles and defeated an army of ten thousand people. It's like. That's a whole story in itself, dude. Why is that just like a footnote? It's like, oh, yeah, by the way, he grabbed the guy. <laughs> Bad things with him. Um, so, yeah, amazing, basically. Um, so, yeah, they, they were some stories from the Fens that I um, started doing. And, and, you know, it was like, cool, I can, I can start doing this. And you can see it's all very rough. It's very much like Eelman here. I was just doing the pictures and writing the stories along it. Um, and then with covid coming in so i started off like thinking oh, i'll do some stories about the fence because not many people know about that but obviously i live in norwich and it's like it's uh, because the fence is strong right and so i say there are only a few stories and as i mentioned norwich is full of stories and things like that in the surrounding areas so i thought actually well what i'll do with covid restrictions you have that kind of radius of where you could go and visit i'll, I'll kind of restrict myself to here to this and start doing more stories about norwich and norfolk and things like that as well um it was also i, I don't like the fact it was but it was also a bit of a commercial sensibility of if I'm making a book, I'm going to be selling it in Norwich. I'm not going to drive all the way to Wisbeach to drop a box of books off. So actually, maybe I should, uh, you know, how much will the fence resonate here? Maybe I should make it also a, a bit local as well. But this is when I really started doing the research. So I used Weird Norfolk as a, as a great resource. Um, like I said, I used Hollow Land. Um, also used Hidden East Anglia, that website, um, which is awesome. And, and also things like the Norfolk Tales and Myths Facebook group. And I was just looking for, like, kind of like I said, I'm interested in these certain aspects. I was looking for the little sparks of things that would intrigue me. And then I'd do the research on it. And because we could um, then mission about and go out on walks and things like that, um, like I said, I was getting into photography and stuff. It all kind of kind of added up together. So in the end, I was like, what happens if I'm doing that, that side of the thing, I'm doing that side of the thing, I might as well do a bit of it, a bit of it all, really. I'm kind of like, it wasn't like it was like a life's mission to write a book. It was kind of all accidental, really. It just sort of came about. Um, but then I started taking photos. Um, and uh, so, like you know, like I said, exploring ruins. You've obviously got St Bennet's Abbey there. That features in the book. You've got some different ruined churches. Like I said, uh, um, I very much enjoy being a ruined church finder, and it all kind of added up to to end up being the final thing. Um, oh, uh, with my drone. Oh, cool, that works. Um, so I also took my drone out, and this is part. Of, look at this. This is teched out cheaper, isn't I it? Can't even, I didn't even know it would do that. <laughs> <laughs> um, so basically, I started taking my drone out and filming some of the locations. It was a case of finding a story, going in and like absorbing it, and taking pictures of it, and just soaking it all up. You know, I'd come home and draw some stuff. But I thought I'd, this is one of the shorter ones I've got, so I just thought this was only a minute long. But I thought I'd stick that in um, just to show. You. So this is the Devil's Windmill, which was uh, Bernie Brograve. He was a guy that um, was a big Bolshie dude again. Like he's quite a famous Norfolk character for being a bit of a dick. Um, and uh, this was his windmill. He bet the devil that he could mow these fields, these very fields here, um, faster than the devil could. And he lost the devil, obviously. Um, and the devil came to claim his reward. And Bernie went and uh, barricaded himself into the windmill, and then the devil um, sort of smashed against it. But it's just another way of, like, I guess, like I said, trying to make things, not trying to make things accessible, but trying to. Um, Try to make the folklore that I want to see. So the droney music and things like that. I'm not interested in like lutes and harps and stuff like that. I like like heavy droney weird stuff and it all adds to it. Um, so it's kind of like how can I articulate my interest in a format that is interesting to me and then hopefully someone else will like it if you see what I mean. Um, and like, so yeah. So and then going, that's my photograph from taking it and then that's the picture I drew when I got home and wrote the story. And that's kind of how I, how I went, went and did it. Um, so yeah, uh, people like that always, it, um, I think it's funny to hear stories about that. There's lots in the book. There's that guy, what was he, uh, the Ramworth guy, Sydney of Ramworth, that was the same, that lost, cheated in that race and everything. Um, one of my other favourites, I, mean, I guess this is now kind of like one of the headline ones really around here is the ruins of East Somerton, but I think it's worth including these because I think the first time, if you ever visited East Somerton ruins, like it just appears, does it? you park up and you're like, where is the ruin? And then you take like two steps and you're like, oh my God, there it is. 
kind of thing. And I think it's one of the most evocative places in all of Norfolk. I think the fact it's out near Winterton and stuff like that, which is kind of like the edge of civilization, but it is like more or less the edge of the country. Um, and I think, again, this is like a nice, sweet story of like revenge, uh, definitely revenge being a uh, dish best served cold. So the story is here. I can't remember the lady's name, which is terrible because you should re- you should remember people's names who were cast down as witches. That's more important than the witch finders or whatever. But um, anyway, the the people of this parish uh, accused this lady of being a witch. They hung her and they buried her in the church, but she had a wooden leg. So over however long, I don't know, her wooden leg grew all the way up to be this tree here in the middle of the thing. And it went through the roof of the church and then it collapsed down on them, killing them all uh, in revenge. And I just think that's awesome. A, she's supposed to haunt it. If you walk around it three times, that'd be clockwise, right? <laughs> and B, um, the monks are supposed to be there as well. Um, so, like, and there's crows there. They all, like, there's like a clump. It's like a scary place. It's really, really cool. Um, so I recommend going there. Um, if, you know, it's, it's, like I said, like just that first moment you see it, it's like, oh, this is so awesome. Um, I also like including this because. Um, every one of my books, it seems, upsets somebody. Um, so when I wrote the Eelman Chronicles, I ended up, we ended up in a weird situation where I had a stalker for a while who thought that the Eelman Chronicles was some kind of Da Vinci code. Uh, and me and my dad were um, trying to cover up or f- help frame Tony Martin, the guy who shot the burglars back in the day. Um, trying to frame him and cover up a giant sex ring involving politicians and people. And he literally was going around bursting into places across the fence trying to find where me and my dad lived and like sending us weird messages. Had to get the cops involved. It was her last case before retirement and things like that. So that was pretty weird, few weeks. Um, uh, and then this one, not quite so much, but this made, this, the fact that I included this story caused the local vicar, I guess, of West Somerton, I assume. There's East Somerton, so I assume there's West. And he wrote into the EDP and was like, well, actually, if you, this story isn't correct, because if you do like carbon dating on the tree or whatever, then you'll actually find out the dates don't quite match up, which is fine. But if your favourite book is the Bible, you've got people flying around and coming back to life, maybe don't let like too much factual stuff get in the way of a good story kind of thing. Um, but that's now my ambition to piss off somebody with every book um, and to write into the paper as well I think is a bit odd and um, say it to your wife over the breakfast table that oh this idiot's written a book and it's wrong but that's fine but to write in takes dedication I think anyway never mind um, so I ended up with like a whole scrapbook of stuff basically and it was like like I said like kind of pictures the footage the photos the drawings the notes and all that sort of stuff and it was like actually like let's turn this into something now I hadn't really thought about making a book um, like I said but um, it was kind of like if I compile all these things, I've got 10 things that could be a thing. It could be a pamphlet. It could be like a little folded A5 flimsy thing that you could give out. If I did 20 things, it could be a zine. If I did 30 things, it could be something else. If I did 30 things and some other stuff, it could be um, a book. Um, so that's what I aim to do. So I carried on doing it and uh, exploring different areas. I wanted quite a strong visual like language on it, I guess, and design on it. Um, I wanted it to stand out on the shelves to be like I think that red cover does compared to all the other stuff. Already had a sweet cover art image. I got the tattoo first, um, and then I asked my tattoo artist if I could use that for the thing. So it's very striking and things like that. And it, like it was all those kind of considerations. It was an experiment in how to design a book, I guess. Um, yeah. So, uh, and I think it uh, came out all right, really. Um, there's other stories. There's some of the things I did like. King railed world from Sutton Hoo. I just I did this do that because I thought that helmet would be cool to draw. So there was an element of that. It was like obviously he's a, he's a big badass, like you know a, a really historical thing. Um, so it's not necessarily ghost stories or or folk tales or whatever. But it, I thought it would be cool to draw. So I did that. And um, one of the things that really sparked an interest in the course, I, I only did one page of it, uh, or like a double page of it, was and I called it Norfolk Nowheres, and it really triggered. Um, an interest in deserted medieval villages in Norwich. It kind of twig in Norfolk, sorry. It kind of twigged that actually I'm going around and seeing all these derelict churches, but there's a derelict church there because there was once a community there, and now the church is derelict. So where's the community? If you see what I mean, and and looking into that stuff. And I love the idea of, um, like that's what I really like absorbing. It's like people walked here and lived here. Even when you go to like Caister down the road, that's a Roman town that people lived and breathed and worked and died and got married and all that sort of stuff. And it's like, like you're here. And I, I, like, I just like thinking about those layers of, of history about who has lived here and things like that. And so this really sparked an interest in this. And luckily having a drone, you can't see half the stuff on the ground, but you put the drone up and you can see the, the pathways of, of where things were. So 
Um, I'd have really liked to have done more of this, or this was potentially going to be what I might do next, but actually Cameron self, I don't know if you guys know Cameron, um, he's started writing a book on that and it feels a bit harsh. Although I did think that, because when we actually first, I looked back at our first memory uh, when I got inspired, it was like, oh, my very first message to you is, shit dude, sorry for all the folklore stuff, I don't think I'm copying you because it's been on my mind. I don't remember that. Yeah. I didn't, I didn't you don't remember? Back. No, I, I, I scrolled back, so I was I like, oh, yeah. um, and you were like, no, cool, of course I want to hear about what you're doing, right? And everybody's got a space for it. And I think that's that's really nice as well, the fact there's room for everybody's take on it. And there's not one, there's not one way of telling them. Um, but yeah, uh, Cameron's now writing a book on that, so I think that'll probably end up pretty good. And he's got a a guy who's got a plane so he can probably get hired and leave so um yeah but i found that really interesting these were um so uh numerous reasons why it happens right like villages go into ruin like there's sometimes the plague happened obviously and people had to abandon things to the plague sometimes like a bad weather over a period of time caused crops to fail and eventually people had to move um and then other times this one here is just outside um if you take the road from kingsland to hunstanton there's a place called borsey um, and that's on the hill to that road there. And in that case, the landowner just, um, he just kicked everybody out. He was like, I'm bald I'm knocking down all your houses and um, I've just turned it to farmland to make me richer. See you later. And they all had to wander off to wherever. Um, Godwick's really cool. That's probably one of the most easily definable ones. You can really see the paths on that. And that's, that's a cool, it's a wedding venue now actually, but it's, it's really cool. Um, so yeah, I'm really interested in that these days. There's one just actually, because I live in Poorland now, as I said, if you, if you go into Poorland, there's one there, um, Bixby, I think that's right. Um, so I went there the other day. Um, so some things I would have done differently had I done it. I would have included a few more lo-fi tales and like really gritty sort of local, local ones. Like I said, I did King Railroad because he was called Draw. Um, and I did a few of the Norwich ones, but um, it's kind of like, some of them feel a bit headline act, like I just said. It's like, oh, am I just actually telling people stuff they already know? But of course, nobody knows everything, and you, you have different perspectives. But I would have perhaps taken some of it down to a lower, more more gritty level, um, uh, or more lo-fi stuff. I really wanted to do some stuff about the special stones. I know you guys, you love the stones, right? Like the one at Ling. <laughs> yeah, um, all the stones. Yeah, and the one we went to, uh, where is it in Suffolk? Deb Deb Debenham, where it sp spins around that stone. So I went, I did go there, um, and I really wanted to do that, especially the one in Ling, that dru druid stone where sacrifices were made, supposedly, right? Um, but actually, what stopped me doing that seems ridiculous now I've done a whole book. I was like, if I just draw a stone, it's just going to look like a lump on a page. And I can't make it look interesting, but I could have done photos and things like that. But for some reason, that was just a mental block. I was like, if I just draw a stone, it's just going to look like a weird lump. Um, I, I don't know why I did that. Um, I'd really like to tell so at some point the story of William and Norwich. So he was the young kid that... Um, was found murdered on Mousehold Heath in like a ritualistic murder and they blamed the Jews, the Jewish community for it at the time, um, whether or not that was the, the case. Um, so they found him, there's actually the ruined chapel on Mousehold just up the road from, kind of just past that, where it meets the ring road near home base basically, it's right tucked in right there isn't it? Um, sorry, what? I didn't know that. Yeah, 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 so he was found, he was like a young like butcher's assistant boy or something like that and he went missing uh, I, don't, I don't know exactly when it was it was a long long time ago and then yeah they found him like he was all kind of made out in a ritual thing and killed there. he's buried like in the cathedral now isn't he and he created the cult created around him and all sorts of stuff so i think there's a really interesting story there to tell um and i've put that spring where king hannah was killed because you lot featured that and i was looking for that that's on the road just as you turn off the um Beckles to Southwell Road, road basically. Is it? I look for that every time. We go quite often, but I could not see it. And it turns out I was just looking on the wrong side of the road the whole bloody <laughs> time. And then I only found it like about two months ago. I was like, there it is. So I would have really liked to include that. And King Anna was um, one of the like big kings of East Anglia back in the day. And they had a big battle. I can't remember that village now. Because it was Blythborough, but there's the, the hamlet that was a, a deserted village that was there. And it's the site of that battle, isn't it? And he got struck down there and um, a spring sprung up where it did. I think you said it's one of the scariest places, that, the scariest vibes or something. I think you had something like that in the weird, <coughs> weird Norfolk article you put. Um, but I would have put that. Um, and I'd also like to have done deeper dives into Norwich. Like I said, there's just a million stories you could tell about Norwich. Um, I don't know why I wrote Cambridge, because not so much really. But um, a, a few more stories about Cambridge maybe. Certainly Ely, because that was such a historic place in the Fens. And I think that's, there's lots of stories there. Um, and Kings Lynn, because Kings Lynn's a weird place anyway, um, but um, 
I went to college in Kingsley and my dad had his trawler there for years, so I know Kingsley, but I also think that ports create interesting stories because you've got people coming in and out, like you've got Devil's Alley where um, you've got an alleyway where supposedly the devil entered the town because he came off the ship, you've got the witch's heart that's in the marketplace where she got burnt and the heart thing, there's just all sorts of stuff um, and I think ports do that. But um, overall, I mean, I am proud of it, I think it is accessible, I think it is a good intro to it, like I said, I'm never gonna, it's never going to be a scholar thing, but I think as an intro to it and a guidebook to stuff, I think um, it's good. Um, it makes a good stocking filler and a good book from the bathroom. I also th- I've decided I call everything like Fenbeast, whatever. So Fenbeast publication, Fenbeast videos and stuff like that. And I think my tagline is books from the bog for the bog. I think that's, that's a, a, a fair thing. Um, but most importantly, I think I made something and the world is slightly more interesting for that being into it. And I think that's the main thing. That's the only really thing that, uh, thing that I ever set out to do is make the world slightly more interesting with everything I make. Um, and that's cool. It did get nominated for East Anglia Book of the Year 2021, which was pretty cool. But then I thought, that, like, it got shortlisted. It's quite good that I didn't win it because, like I said, I don't consider myself an author. And if I'd won it and then had to give a speech, it would just be like to a room of authors, author, author. And I'd just be like, sorry. And that would have been a bit of a show. I drew some pictures and needed some words. Um, so I wrote some. Um, that would have been a bit weird. Um, but yeah, I, I am proud of it. And, uh, you know, it's. Uh, being invited to things like this is another I wouldn't be here and you wouldn't be here listening to me and hopefully enjoying it if um, I hadn't done it right so it's things like that it also opens up different things and makes new contacts and stuff so that's good um, so what's next I might do another there's, my dad has a million 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 stories about his life that I could write and dad generally does have a chance of becoming like a bona fide modern, modern folklore hero I think um, so I might do more Eel Man Chronicles I have got a couple of stories that I've written but haven't put into anything yet and I'm kind of I just stopped doing one because I did the thing. Um, and also, possibly this. So they say, don't judge a book by its cover. I'm not sure how often people start a book by just designing a cover, um, just for something to do. But I might do, I'm quite interested in doing an alternative history of the land, uh, alternative history of the Fens. So um, I'd really like to tell the story of the draining of the Fens, but I don't want it to be academic and dry. So I might add mystical elements to it, but kind of based in reality. So the guy that stalked me, I'm planning on having him as like an incompetent witch finder roaming around if I do ever make it. Um, Tony Martin, the farmer who shot the things, he could be some evil baron um, in a fort in the fens. My dad could appear randomly. Um, things like that. So kind of like a mystical, the, a true story, but with mysticism around it. But it might be a bit more than I can buy um, than, than I can treat. Thing. I have already got the cover, that's a game of tattoo, I've got, I won't get that out because that would be a horror story in itself, <laughs> but I've got that tattooed on here, so like, that's an easy way to, to get images, but um, I think it could be really cool, but it would be hard to do, but I, um, I've started drawing pictures for that and hopefully I can carry on, on with that. Um, so yeah, come to the end, I think all, I guess the main message is, obviously I'm not an expert in all this stuff necessarily, but hopefully it's, it's told a bit of the story about why I'm interested in it and how to do it, and I think the most important thing is, Especially in this day and age, we like I'm the worst for it, flicking through on my phone. But there's so many things that are just there and then gone. But actually, these are the stories that do make us, and they are who we are, and um, they are where we came from, where we go, and everything else. So I think it's important to even look into it. Like you live in Roxham, Nicola. There might be stories about Roxham. I don't know anything about Roxham, but there will be some stories there, right? And it's yeah. like I think it's interesting to um, find them and learn them and share them regardless of any artistic ability or writing art ability or anything like that, like tell those stories and continue sharing them in any way, whatever medium like you feel comfortable or you think you can articulate with them. Because I think that's just an important thing to do, um, especially until we work out exactly who we are in this country and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, that's it. I hope that was all right. There's my um, socials again, if you're interested in following. I do have, I'm, not, I'm not here to sell books, but I do have some if you're interested or that sparks an interest. I've got copies of both the um, Eelman and Apparitions. Um, I did think you could all just have a free bookmark and a sticker, um, if, if that's cool. Um, so I bought those, so feel free to come and get one of them. And yeah, I'm happy to take any questions if that was all right. I don't really know Forum to like tell your stories over the top of your drone. Yeah, maybe I could do that. I did do a one on Black Shook recently, so that like I tried to I put had text in there. Um, I'm a bit 
It's one of those things of hearing your own voice, isn't it? Like, uh, <laughs> you've all had to hear it for 45 minutes or however long. It's like, uh, like uh, it's listening back to that. But yeah, that is definitely... Uh, I did read out the Eelman Chronicles in a silly voice once, like Jack and Ori. That was good. So yeah. like, maybe I can just do it in a weird... You should, like something like a bit of a podcast. Yeah, yeah, maybe so, yeah. I did get invited on a podcast today, actually. Off the back of being on this, some guy didn't notice me. And I think, like, a, a podcast, like, based around your stories in your book and stuff, I think, you know, yeah, yeah. quite a good draw. It'd be quite cool. Yeah, yeah. It's from a personal level. level yeah, no, so thank you, yeah. <laughs> but again, it's a way of making it accessible, right? Yeah. If you, if you, yeah if you do it. We'll see, Daniel. We'll see. Well, you and, can and voice them over for me. Then you can branch out to different places. <laughs> 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 no, really good, buddy. Really good. Thanks for, thanks for sharing. Thanks, mate. Any other questions? Can my husband's family be in your phone book? Because they're all fenners. Yeah, where are they from? Christchurch. Christchurch, yeah, that is fenners, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> He told me, I, I come from Cossey, and I'd always said to him, I lived in the middle of nowhere, and he went, just you wait. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he took me, and I was like, oh, jeez. Well, people yeah. say Norfolk is flat, right? It's like, Norfolk ain't flat. Like, yeah. the is, I like, love it out there. I think it's amazing. If you ever catch the train from Ely to Peterborough, you go past um, Wellney Washes, and that's yeah. literally just like a train line in the middle of water that floods every year. So, um, so, yeah. his, his uncle was the uh, champion skater oh, no, yeah, on Wellney yeah, and yeah, it froze. Nice. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh, well, if no one's got any more questions, I think if we can give Chris another round of applause. Thank you.